announcements that we have. I do it this time. We are excited that Pastor Bob and Liz are joining us. This is their first Sunday here. But I'm going to invite any staff members and any elders to come on up as we are about to pray over Bob as he starts his time here at the Christian Life Center. So any elders, you can make your way on up right now. All right, there we go. Any elders and then Bob as well. Thank you. you want to encircle me here. Lord, you're an awesome God. Lord, uh, we are so grateful for this day. And you knew about this day long before we did. We're grateful for that as well. Lord, I pray a special anointing on Bob and Liz as they join the CLC family. I just pray that um, we will open our spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear uh, what Bob has to share with us as we start this new season. Lord, I just pray that we can be uh, instrumental in bringing heaven to earth in our little corner here in, uh, in Chester County, Lord. Lord, you're an awesome God. Again, we are grateful for your leading us to this point. We're grateful for the process. We're grateful for Bob's willingness to accept the call to be our senior pastor. Father God, we do thank you for bringing us to this place in this time we are not here by accident, nor is Bob and Liz. We pray, Father, that as the, as the song we sang this morning, we echo those words, pour out your spirit, Father, on this place, on Bob as he brings the word, on us as we listen. Might our hearts and ears and eyes be open and responsive and receptive to what you want to teach us. We pray for his ministry here, Father, that it would be fruitful, that it would be a, a, a time of great abundance, that the harvest would be plentiful, that the laborers would not be few but many. And Father, we pray that um, you would just uh, open the doors and open the opportunities that lie all around us and help us to, to um, be part of that process. We ask all of this in the powerful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful for the team of leaders that God has blessed CLC with, and it's such a privilege to be able to join you, uh, albeit, a, thank you, honey, a, a week later than we had thought in God's providence, uh, and yet full of so much goodness. And uh, I had long thought about what I might want to open up from God's Word. And I want to speak to you today from Isaiah 43 about the renewing power of the Spirit of God. And I want to talk about it uh, in Isaiah. If you know the book, and this is, I love how the ESV has, this is the book of Isaiah. It's just the book of Isaiah. <laughs> and um, the Isaiah is kind of a mini Bible for us. Uh, the Bible has 66 books in it. Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. Isaiah is in two parts. 
the first part has 39 chapters. The Old Testament has 39 chapters. And those 39 chapters in Isaiah, in some ways, mirror the Old Testament. Um, they start with God saying, I'm your creator in chapter one. Don't you know who I am? And, and move through it. And it, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are the prelude to the second 27 chapters. The 27, there are 27 chapters in the New Testament. So you can think of Isaiah in its two parts. Part one is like the Old Testament. And part one is God begging his people to be faithful to him and not make these alliances with other nations and other things that ultimately will carry them away and will rule over them harshly. And then the second part of that is they did that. <laughs> they did it anyway. And the second part of Isaiah, you would expect God to say, I told you not to do that, to come off as a scold, to say now there's going to be some consequences and recrimination for your faithlessness. But it's not that at all. It is about the power of God to renew us, the power of God's Spirit to renew us. And there are really three themes, and we're going to look at all these three themes. These are my three points this morning. This, the power of the Spirit of God to accompany us and renew us in our suffering. That's point one. God's power to renew us in our suffering. Point two, God's power to renew us when sin has scattered us. And then thirdly, God's power to renew us when we've been depleted and we need reinvigoration. And so we're going to look at this glorious second part of Isaiah beginning with chapter 43. And the focus is going to be in verses 18 through 21. And it he begins by saying, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to and to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I have formed for myself." that they might declare my praise. That is an amazing supernatural promise of God's renewing power to, to open up rivers in the wilderness. Um, a few months ago, uh, Liz and I had the privilege of going to Google headquarters in California, and they were designing and opening a million dollar, a, a one billion dollar building. It was incredible, a billion dollars for one building. And the initial design... <laughs> was to actually build a stream on top of the roof of that building and follow it down. And they said, you know what? Even a billion dollars could not engineer, with the best engineering, a stream that actually would work uh, and would not be some kind of ecological problem. And God here is saying, I am going to do the impossible, and I'm going to make rivers in the desert places. So this is an astounding promise of his presence. And this whole chapter, chapter 43, is about the renewing power of God's Spirit. I want to just say nothing good happens apart from the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. We've all been around church institution enough to know that church institution is the most miserable place in the world when the Spirit of God has departed. It's miserable. But when the Spirit of God lights upon the people of God and the church is aligned, 
there is no more thrilling place to experience the touch of God. And so this whole chapter focuses on our desperate need for the Spirit of God. And I, and I want to frame it by looking first at these verses that open the chapter about our suffering. It begins in verse 1, and it says, But now, says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, on I O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. We don't deserve to have our name called by God. We can call in His name, but He knows us. He calls our name. I've called you by name. You are mine. And He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. I'm going to just park on that verse. This is a verse about loss. This is a verse about suffering. And when we're suffering, one of the, the consequences of our, of our sin often causes us to think that maybe God has abandoned us. The Bible often speaks of our, of our life as a... As, as a kind of refining furnace. There's, a, there's an old uh, hymn that says, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. And it, and it says, um, the flames shall not harm you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And when we're in that awareness of, of trial and of loss, passing through fire and, and loss, our, our conscience often accuses us that, that we've been abandoned by God because there's something in all of us that knows because we know ourselves I know my own heart it's like I deserve to be abandoned God is just so good he's so pure he's so holy and so God wants us not only to be safe in his presence but he wants us to know his presence and I think these verses are what the apostle Peter was thinking of when in his letter he says, for a little while you're troubled by various trials. And he says, these have come so that your faith, being more precious than gold, may be proved genuine. And, and the presence of God comes with us in, a, in, in our weakest, weakest moment. And he's, he's thinking of life as a kind of, of furnace and a test. And we know that a furnace can either, it can either burn something to cinders or it can refine it and bring out its beauty. And we know that two people can go through, two different people can go through the same trial and, and one person uh, becomes embittered and another person becomes beautified and strengthened. And here, the difference is whether the Spirit of God it has accompanied us to, to make that a holy experience. Not a pleasant experience, but a holy experience. And God here is saying, if, if you are his child, if you've grasped onto him, he says that when your trials come, he says you will not go in those alone. There will be never a time when the child of God is deserted and abandoned by God in the midst of suffering. And if you acknowledge and rest your life and base your life on the fact that Jesus Christ went into the furnace for you, then he will always be in the furnace with you. And I know it, it happened many, many years later when Daniel was taken into the exile 
that was a consequence of the sin Isaiah had warned him not to, first, not to do, but it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to idols, if you know that story. And they boldly said, we, they said, we don't know whether our God will deliver us, but we do know that he can. We do know that he is sovereign. We do know that he is almighty. Such a statement of faith. And it was King Nebuchadnezzar who's, who looked into the furnace and he says, I see three men walking about, but I don't just see three, I see a fourth. And you know who the fourth was? It was a manifestation of Jesus. Before he faced the cross for us, he, he even was in the furnace of affliction with them. And the presence of God promises that we will never be abandoned. As many of you know, we were in Kenya with a planned visit to our daughter, and we received word uh, that my younger brother uh, was having massive organ failure. And I so wanted to be there at that time. It, it is a toll to watch your loved one die, but to not be there is a whole other kind of trial. And I received word, I was, I was able to actually call and speak words to my brother Johnny at a day that, that we had experienced many deliverances and delays in his final day. Something you need to know about my brother Johnny is that um, he was born when my oldest sister was 10, my, my next sister was five, and I was in the terrible twos. And it was supposed to be a, a welcome of great joy, but he was born with a heart difficulty where his heart could not pump enough oxygen into his blood. And so uh, his little lips were blue, his, his lungs were heaving. And my sister, who was 10, was told um, by my parents and, and a Presbyterian minister named Calvin Knock. What a great name for a Presbyterian minister. But she was told, she was told, this little brother is not going to come home. He's going to go be with Jesus. And my sister, as she reflected on it, she says at the time she thought, that sounds really good to me because my other brother is in the terrible twos and is such a nuisance. We'll let him go live with Jesus. That's fine. <laughs> but for all of my life, I mean, I remember my grandfather telling me, my, my brother would have medical emergency and it would be met by a miraculous intervention to sustain his life uh, and to give him grace. And my, my grandfather, who was just a heroic figure, taught me so much of the faith, taught us the words of how great thou art from our youngest age, um, just always there for us. would just tell me that, you know, I, I, I pulled my tractor. He was a farmer, and he, he had cleared hundreds of acres by the strength of his back and the sweat of his brow. And, and, and he would describe for me his relationship with Jesus. He said, I would just pull my tractor over the shade, and I'd either turn it off or let it idle. And I just enter a season of prayer and I just say, Lord, spare Johnny's life. Spare Johnny's life. And so you got to know that when I received word in Kenya, yeah, it's heartbreaking, it's grievous. But it was 55 years later than we thought it was going to be that John would go home. And when I, when I met with your elders, I told them, we, we had a Zoom meeting, and I said one of my prayer requests was that my brother would have peace. Because John, from his youngest age, had been told, fight, fight, fight for your health. And he was. He, you know, when you have trauma in your life, you learn to either flee from it or just freeze. 
or you fight. And whatever works for you from the youngest age, you get really good at. My brother, he was a big-hearted spirit, and he was a fighter. And he would fight, fight, fight all of the physical ailments that he had due to this bum heart that he was born with. And I knew that he did not have peace. I mean, my last text before leaving the continent was my brother said, I'm going to leave this nursing care facility by my birthday, April 5th, and I need a moving truck to get me out of here, and I'm going back to my home. And he was like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk out of here against doctor's orders on my birthday no matter what. So there, there was no sense of peace in his circumstance. And so when I got the word, my sister told me that um, the Lord had come with amazing peace. And she said that as, as he was struggling, God showed up. Like he promises in this verse, when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the fire, I'm going to be with you. And she said, since you weren't here, Bob, she calls me Bobby, Johnny, my other sister's Libby, Molly. Parents were being really cute. She says, when you weren't here, Bobby, we didn't know what to do. Um, so we called the chaplain. And the chaplain came in. And again, at this point, my brother, is saying, the doctor is saying, Johnny, we, we think your body is giving out. And the, the chaplain uh, was so important at that moment because my brother was still saying, yeah, I want everything. I believe in miracles pull out all the stops, keep my body going. And uh, at this point, the chaplain came and began talking to my brother and, and said, Johnny, I think that your body's in the process of dying. And my brother immediately responded and he says, I know where I'm going and I get to see dad before mom does. <laughs> and the chaplain began speaking to him and just brought the familiar things to my brother. He prayed the Lord's Prayer every single word. And she began talking to him about his faith, and he says, well, for me, my faith, I think of my grandma teaching me the words of how great thou art. And at that moment, the chaplain said, well, then let's sing it. And my sister's there, one of his best friends, a longtime neighbor's there, and my brother with the chaplain in that little chorus in that ICU room he sang every single word and he worshipped God in the presence of God in his, in his most difficult hour and my sister said he had such peace they, they, they began to take all the medication off and they just asked my brother a couple more questions he's like I already told you I'm ready and, and, and so I just want to say it's very personal to me that, that God comes through on this promise to us in our hardest time. And I want you to help com complete this point for me by just singing with me the words of this hymn. And I want to teach you a precious second, maybe not so well-known verse of this, of this great hymn, How Great Thou Art. But I want you to sing along. Give me a little sound here. Uh-oh. I need Megan. We need Megan. Megan's amazing. There. Got it? Okay. Wonderful. But I'm going to invite you to sing with me in this point. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all 
thy power throughout the universe displayed. I love how we pivot then to the presence of God. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great I want to teach you a second verse of this. It's not well known, but I love it. And it so exemplifies God being with us in our trials. When burdens press and seem beyond endurance, bow down with grief. To him I lift my face. And then in love, he brings me sweet assurance, my child for thee, sufficient is my grace. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. What a sweet sound. Thank you. And um, my little brother Johnny just preached the first point of my first sermon at CLC, and he would love that. (laughs) Um, I don't know whether he's aware of that now or not, but I will be when I see him again. So thank you for that. And that is the goodness of our God. But I want to move where this passage moves. And the second thing about this text is it says that God's presence comes upon us when we've been scattered or when his people have been scattered. The last two years have not been easy for any church. I don't know a pastor who cannot share some of the the added distress. I know pastors have been in ministry 40 years and they said they've had more difficulty in the last two than the combined 38. And I think it's been true for believers. If you're invested and connected to a church, I think you've felt that in some way. There's been a sifting going on. There's been all kinds of things that have scattered people. And it was true in Isaiah's day, there were things that were scattering people. Largely, it was that the world's way of operating and thinking had come into the church and was, was fragmenting people. Uh, in Isaiah's day, especially, it was different alliances with the 
political and military powers, making alliances with Egypt and uh, other powers. And so in, in, in later in Isaiah 43, he has the, this famous verse where he says, bring my sons from afar and bring my daughters from the ends of the earth and gather them around my table. Because what Isaiah saw was that unfaithfulness was going to cause even families to be splintered apart and children to be carried away in different directions. And the heart of God is restless until his people are, are gathered back together. But here's the reality. God's people had become so faithless and they had become such a misrepresentation to who God is that God was no longer willing to protect them. And in fact, God even said, I'm sending the foreign nations who you've made alliances with into your gates to actually scatter you and move you out because God is so committed to his glory that he will make a wrecking ball to wreck false spiritual institutions that are misrepresenting him, uh, even when it leads to, to a kind of, of scattering. And there has been so much scattering. It seems like we, we had seasons where people were being gathered, and it seems like that churches have experienced a kind of scattering. And I want to be very clear. I don't put the blame on the scattering to some of the people who've been scattered. I'm going to tell you, a lot of pastors I know have wanted to, to scatter themselves, and you're blessed with faithful leadership who have stayed at the helm when it hasn't been easy. And while there's some people that have left institutions of faith because they don't want to hold on to what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to just say I have compassion for that group also. I said, let's have a conversation about what's difficult in the Word of God. It's always safe to have that conversation. You don't have to just leave. Let's talk. I've wrestled with those things too, and still do in some ways. But the reality is a lot of people have left church and institution not because they stop believing in the teaching of Jesus, but people leave the institution because they believe in the teachings of Jesus so much that they can't stomach being part of an institution that claims to be about the teaching of Jesus but clearly isn't. I think we all know, and, and maybe we've felt that impulse and so I just want to be very clear. I don't see returning to the Lord as exactly the same as returning to the church. Some people have had to abandon the bootleg form of Christianity that they've sometimes experienced, maybe even on the other side of us, in order to retain their faith in Jesus. I know that sounds really harsh. It's true. It's true. Um, you know, what, what do you do when you're a follower of Jesus and you're committed to walking in the light, but you discover there's a part of the church that's committed to walking in the darkness? What do you do? What, what do you do? What does honesty do in the face of dishonesty? What does integrity do in the face of deception? It, it doesn't loan its powers to it, Right? Um, what does commitment to the gentle way of Jesus shepherding us do in the face of brute force being used instead with people being trampled? What does wholehearted spirituality do in the face 
of the corporate business model of church coming in and disrupting the spirituality of church. I've talked to so many people who say, yeah, I want the church to be easy access so everybody can come and explore, but the business model has come in to the church to such a degree that we're easy access for beginners and basic engagement, but it's near impossible to go deeper. And so they say, it's just, it's skating across the surface of a relationship with God. And so people have been alienated. It's a quote of, of the Senate chaplain, the famous Senate chaplain, Dick Halverson. He said, at the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. But then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. And I just want to tell you, at, at, at my point in 34 years of ministry, where I feel, I feel the same health as I felt at 33, really, but I don't have a year that I want to give to corporate spirituality. I, I don't have any energies or voice left where I want to be the front man to an institution that says they're spiritual, but they've really been infiltrated by the same political voices that are wreaking such havoc and splintering our own society. And I know, I know, I know you, want to, you don't want that. And if you know Jesus, you don't want that either. You don't want to lend your powers, your voices to that. And, and that's what's splintering so many people. And I just want to say, God is against it too. It's not just important that you know that as your pastor, I really want us to be full on committed, not only to the word of Jesus and the works of Jesus, but to the way of Jesus. So that people feel the touch of Jesus, even when we have to tell them some of the hard things, maybe that Jesus would call us to say. It's not just important you know that I'm committed, it's important that we know that God is committed to that. And that was the whole reason for the exile where Israel was carried away because God was no longer going to give them what made Israel Israel was their land, their temple, and their king. And when they use their land and their temple and their king to misrepresent God, God says, I'm taking it all away. Because I will put the wrecking ball to institutions that say they represent me, but really don't. And he says, I'm doing that because I love my people. I love my people because it, the institution exists for the sake of the precious sheep who Jesus gave his blood to redeem. I've sometimes heard people call people who've left back to church and they're like hey yeah hey don't throw the baby out with the bathwater i know you had a bad experience but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater come back to the institution of church and i understand the sentiment behind that but i think they've got it wrong because the institution of church is not the baby in the bathwater it's the people it's the people and god here is saying I've let you have the scattering, but I want to bring you back and renew you. And then he's saying, I'm going to make a meeting place without a temple, without a king, without the land. I'm going to make a place in the wilderness. And I'm going to supernaturally cause a stream of refreshment, streams in Isaiah and flowing water. It's the living presence of the Holy Spirit. I have to think Jesus lifted these words from Isaiah 43 
when he says, if any one of you believes in me, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, something that Google with a billion dollars couldn't put on a rooftop. Jesus is supernaturally going to be putting in the soul of every single person who yields to him, and it's going to be a renewing, powerful force. But the rivers of life and reinvigoration only come as, as we are committed to surrender ourselves to everything that represents Jesus. And that means renewal is connected to repentance. Because if I am renewed and I have not repented where I've strayed, I have simply been reinforced in evil. You know, we're instructed in the Bible to pray for our enemies. So we, we pray even for all the manifestations of evil. We pray for Vladimir Putin, right? Or we try to. But we don't want God to reinvigorate, renew, restore the energies of Vladimir Putin apart from repentance. It would be monstrous. And it would be monstrous. There, there's a, a, a quote, and I, I couldn't quite find who, who said this, but they said, if, if God answered the prayers for the revival of the American church in the current state that the American church is, it would create a disaster of which Christianity would not recover for generations. Because you don't want a reinvigorated church that is committed to a bootleg version of Jesus. You don't want a reinvigorated church that promotes cultural Christianity. Because cultural Christianity is not an on-ramp to real Christianity. Cultural Christianity will always seek to exterminate real Christianity. You've got to repent. And repentance is not beating yourself up. It's letting Jesus beautify us. It's, it's letting him correct the faults and blemishes where we don't reflect Jesus the way that he intends for his church to reflect him. And so God says, I'm making these streams where they're for people who have, who have been humbled and who are at a place of repentance. Preparing this reminded me of a dear friend several many years ago in our church in Maryland there was a, a movement of the born of prayer almost every revival renewal is born of prayer I'm sure you probably know that heard that we experienced that in our church in Maryland there was a group that gathered for prayer it was always very small when God's the only attraction usually tenants is small but it was faithful and in the midst of one of those times of prayer, somebody prayed something like, oh God, I wish you could give us 25 men for 24 hours. I think it was mostly women in this group, usually is. And that, we latched onto that. And we grabbed onto, I think it was Martin Luther King weekend, and we got the place, and we, we asked men to sign up to pray for 24 hours together. The only attraction would be prayer. And we weren't having a lot of success, so we decided to get the women to pray. And we said, women, we want you to pray for the men. Pray for 25 men. And we got, we got about 30 men, and we went away with, for nothing but prayer. And God came and visited us. It was amazing. And one of my, my best friends, he was a deacon in the church, lived even right down the street from us. At one point, I was struck by hearing his voice as we were singing some choruses. And I realized I'd never heard his voice before. And there were tears rolling down his cheek. And God was just renewing us. And we would have times of confession, repentance, and sharing. 
And my friend, Adam was his name, shared. He said, God has, God has moved in my heart in such a way that I've had to confess I have been locked in bitterness. He'd experienced a very bitter, acrimonious divorce, and in that divorce, he had lost all visitation rights to his four-year-old at the time. And he says, I became so bitter at God, I purposed to never sing his praise in worship. And I locked my lips and would not sing. And God showed me what a, what, what a hideous distortion of blame. I've become in blaming him for the evil I've incurred. And he broke it. And he broke it with tears and voice. And he joined us with vigor in worship. Friends, that's... That's the beauty of what repentance looks like. You find capacities that have been shut down. You find a voice of praise. God gives you the oil of joy for mourning and the, the garment of praise for the spirit of despair. Repentance is a beautiful thing. And, and it's what Isaiah speaks of. You know how Isaiah 40, the second part of the, the Bible that's contained in Isaiah begins. It says, every valley will be exalted. Every mountain will be made low. Uh, the rough place is plain because God is making a highway. He's making it easy for us to come back to him. He's making it so simple. You just say the word and God is ready. And, and, and this is what revival is. Um, revival is the eruption of God's heart on a life that is poured out and surrendered. Um, Richard Loveless put it this way. I love Richard Loveless' writings on renewal. He says, revival is an infusion of new spiritual life imparted by the Holy Spirit to Christ's body. In revival, God is not concerned about filling empty churches. He is concerned about filling empty hearts. If you fill empty churches, but you don't fill the hearts with Christ, you've really not done anything. And revival is not just an emotional touch, but it is a takeover. It, it, it's bogus to just be moved in our emotions, but it, it is a takeover. And it is, here's what J.I. Packer says about revival. He says, revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and it restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. And there comes upon a person in revival a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise, and love with an evangelistic outflow. Oh, we ought to long for revival. Revival is basically, it's falling in love with Jesus over and over again. Revival is simply when when you return to God and God returns to you and everybody sees the difference. And they may not even be able to say why. It's the touch of Jesus in and through you. I love that there's a, there's a 300 year history and I'm sure it's, it's all kinds of ups and downs spiritually in the life of, of this blessed congregation. But what I know is every denomination really formed as kind of the aftermath of some kind of revival. I think it's true of this congregation. And each one is basically, each denomination is kind of the remaining evidence of the institutions that were formed in the heat of the Holy Spirit moving. And when heated, the institution was pliable and, and, and able to be molded and steered and walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. But then when the Holy Spirit movement that birthed the movement cooled off, denominations tend to become brittle, rigid. 
Jesus spoke of this when he described the, the old wineskins bursting with the new wine. They can't contain it. And, and so then a new denomination is born. And then a new denomination is born. But it doesn't have to be that way. God can renew and renew and renew and give new life so that we can breathe out the invigoration of God. And again, God makes it this image of a pool in the wilderness. Do you realize how radical this is? This is such a New Testament open access to the presence of God because in the Old Testament, the presence of God was guarded more tightly than the control room in a nuclear power facility. You had ranks and file of, of, of the tribes of Israel and Levites and rituals and washings and special robes and special days in the calendar in order to be able to come into the very Holy of Holies. That's the Old Testament. Protect it. And Isaiah leaps into awareness of how God longs to have a direct encounter with us, unfiltered. This is God's love is restless. I want you to see God's heart and his love is restless until his love rests upon us and you know it and I know it and we're aglow with it. And this idea of the pools in the wilderness, anybody can go to the wilderness. Not anybody could go to the Holy of Holies, but anybody comes to the wilderness and, and God highlights this by saying even the jackals and ostriches are there. <laughs> These were not honored animals. <laughs> they were scavengers. They, they were the unclean and here's the reality all of us are the unclean all of us are the outsider and God says I'm creating this pool for you to be a source of my renewing power it means that that pool is a culture where yeah the unclean are even safe it's a culture of grace it's a culture of grace it's a culture where we recognize that other people maybe even those that we've grown estranged from or had some kind of offense in the past, they're also welcome to that same party. And to be a culture of grace, it's what I want to really covenant with, with all of you who love Christ and love this place that we would be. Um, you know, there's a couple ways you can maintain order in a church. You can maintain a kind of... Um, uniform culture and one of the ways is you create protection over the presence of God you you put people under the microscope there is this kind of culture um, and the thing about that is it works it brings a kind of conformity through legislation and I, I heard a, a, a story of, from an Australian who described the antithesis the opposite of this that Australian ranchers discovered if you're an Australian rancher, you've got miles of pasture land and you've got to herd your, your animals, but you can't constantly be on them. And it is too expensive to build fences. Lots of churches want to build fences. They want to build rules. They want to somehow corral people into some kind of cookie cutter conformity. Um, but if you're an Australian rancher, you don't have enough money to build the fences. So you know what they do? they create a watering hole. When the watering hole is in the center of that pasture land, what they've discovered is that the animals will only stray so far away, but the spiritual reality, the authenticity, 
the thing that they can get there reliably and clearly and cleanly nowhere else is what draws people into the place. And I've seen it. I've seen it in churches I've pastored where where when we're known for being the place where the fountain of living water is unimpeded, um, where it's unpoliced, where it's safe for absolutely anybody to come, you don't need any gatekeepers there it will sell itself and people will flock to it who are tired and weary of all the religious performance and who find Jesus to be the fountain of living waters because he really is as wonderful as he says he is. And he's best experienced when we experience him together. And that's the vision Jesus has. And he has it for all of us. I have to tell you, I'm a little bit so burnt out over churches talking about their vision and plans and all they're going to do that, that I sometimes feel the question that I hope sometimes you're asking, does this church have a vision for me? Does this church have a vision for my life? Not just corporately, what we're going to do together, but does this church have a vision for me? And I just want to say the, the heart of God throbs with a vision of what your life looks like if it becomes a place where living waters go out from you. I want to ask you, what would revival look like in your life? What would it look like? This is a beautiful question. It's not a shaming question. It's a beautiful question because God actually wants to do it. <laughs> um, what would being spirit-led in all your relationships look like? What would no longer being anxious or insecure look like in your life? What would being generous to others and responsive in service look like? How would it change in your relationships? Where are there conversations you need to have, even if the only conversation is, I, don't, I am not content with where our relationship is, and I don't know how to make it better? That would be the first step. But it's something God is, is longing for us because here is what you have to see in, in Isaiah is the rivers of invigoration are for those who will allow those same rivers to cleanse them and free them. The rivers of invigoration of what has been depleted, what has been lost, they're made also to wash us and we have to come ready to be washed. And it means we embrace that culture. I'm going to close by just reading a couple paragraphs of what I think a culture of grace that allows the fountains at the center to be the governing principle of the life of a church. So we become this incendiary, warming fellowship. We become this irrepressible fellowship that draws people in all states. And I, I got these from a pastor I admire named Ray Ortland, and he says this is, these are the things. If you, if you want to put up the culture, it starts with safety. We're a safe place. We're a non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No cornering anyone. No shaming, but respect and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. And I want to say no one even being honest about the fact that they may say, I'm not even sure I'm seeking the Lord, but I'm being honest. There's no fear in that either. A church culture where we say, time, no pressure. Not even self-imposed pressure. 
No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry. Because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level because God is patient. This is what church must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to go. It's where we're finally free to grow and grow and grow and let the rivers of life and let us be known as a place that is safe, that is guarding that experience, that recognizes that's our sacred, that's our sacred birthright. It's the presence, the renewing presence of God. We can't franchise it. We can't package it. We can't strategize it. We pray it down. We believe it because God has said it. He didn't tell us to make the stream. He didn't tell us to make the river. He said, I will do it. And I will bring renewal to you. I can tell you, God wants it more for you and for me than we ever even want it for ourselves. And it's the renewing force of God. If you ask me what God is doing in our day around the world, I think this is what he's doing after a season that's been tough, where we pass through the fire and the water, where we've seen lots of scattering. We're seeing God say, I am building a people of authenticity who are renewed in the power of my son and who will credit my name as people where rivers of living water flow out from them. I invite you with the invitation of Jesus to seek him for what that means for your life and to lay hold of it together. What would God do in this part of Chester County if we surrendered ourselves and God showed up in these ways, I don't think the world has yet seen what can be done with a whole community aligned to that great purpose and spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, you were so sweet. You were so kind. You were so eager to impart yourself to us. And now we're preparing, Lord, to take really the very presence and impartation of Jesus into ourselves through the emblems you appointed, the bread and the cup. Lord, we would not ask you to invigorate us in our sin. And we would not come to you dishonestly. And we are so thankful we don't need to. You already know it all. And Lord, all you really want for the areas that displease you is for us to be equally displeased with ourselves and to own it. And so, God, I pray you would give repentance to us wherever repentance is needed. That for all who know you, Lord, this would be meaningful because we participated in honesty and authenticity. Accompany these emblems, Lord, They're these pre-made cups and wafers, but we just set them apart because you have promised that you would manifest yourself through the cup and the bread. Simple as these emblems are, Lord, may we have a sacred awe that they are the very body and blood of Jesus spiritually to us, that as we commune by faith, they invigorate our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. In order to come to the Lord's table, there are two things needed. First is that you be a follower of Christ. This is not for someone who's not yet a follower, although we're very glad you're here. And it doesn't mean that those of us who are followers deserve it. We don't. No one does. But it means we placed our trust in Christ. And the first thing I'd like us to do, even before you take, is to confess together what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And we're going to use an old creed. It was found in the second century called the Apostles' Creed. It has 12 articles. Some say one for each apostle. It's been confessed down through the ages by churches all around the globe and every kind of denomination. And I'm going to invite you to stand, if you would, and confess your faith. If you're able to stand, if you're online watching with us, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These are the beliefs. So Christian, confess with the church around the world and down through the ages, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those are the articles of the Christian faith. It's good news. It's what God has done for us. And then I want to invite you to reflect on this prayer of confession as we take. Together, let's address God with these words of confession and acknowledgement. Gracious God, who pours out freely the gift of your Holy Spirit, we confess before you that we have failed to recognize this most valuable gift. We have been satisfied with ordinary things, suspicious of unfamiliar things, and blind to spiritual things. Cleanse and forgive us, O Lord. Burn away our presumption and self-sufficiency. Open us in faith to receive the renewing touch of your hand. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and we will partake together as he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Lord Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of others, of the sins of many. As often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink. Gracious Father, thank you for seating us around the table of Jesus. You are the host. 
impart and seal our identity as blood-bought sons and daughters of yours. Renew us and revive us, Lord, and reform our lives that we represent you more faithfully and fully in all the opportunities you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing our final song.
so looking forward to get to know you over these weeks. I want to invite you as we depart to lift up your heart to God. This is the place in the service where we really are asking God to take the way we've experienced him in here out into our lives. And so I want to place that power and presence of God upon your life with these words from Scripture. Lift up your hearts to him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And though you do not see him, you love him. And you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. And now may the God of hope fill your lives with joy and peace through believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. To Jesus' praise and glory. Amen. It's the power of